So if you could ask God anything and you knew he was going to respond, what would you ask him? I mean, let's get like the belly button question out of the way. Like, why do those exist? Like, let's, those, those sorts of questions, let's just ignore those for a minute. Let's get real though. If you, if you knew that God would answer you and you could ask him anything, think for a second. What would you ask him? Has there been a season, an experience, a time, a diagnosis where it, God felt the most questionable? Kind of like an uncomfortable question to even pose in church, right? Are there questions that are off base for God? I mean, if this world, your life, is God's art, and he is the artist, why are there moments when it feels like the art doesn't reflect the artist? How's that call and response go? I say God is good, and you say, and I say all the time, and you say, but does it feel like God is good all the time? Really? in our real day-to-day, Monday through Saturday life. I mean, we walk into church, and we have to say, God is good all the time, brother. <laughs> but how about on Tuesday? How about when the diagnosis comes back? How about when someone walks away from you and rejects you? If you had asked God anything, and you knew he would respond, what would that question be? One of my favorite books of the Bible, probably my favorite book of the Bible, is this book, Habakkuk. And by the way, organizationally, we've landed on Habakkuk. If you're a Habakkuk pronouncer, this might not be the church for you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But we've landed on Habakkuk. So you're going to hear Habakkuk. Uh, I'm here this week, and then Tommy will be doing Habakkuk chapter 2 next week, and I'll be back for chapter 3. But Habakkuk is this brave mysterious, profound little book. It's three chapters long, 56 verses. You can read it from verse, first verse to last in about 10 minutes. And yet, in this book, whatever that question is that you would ask God, that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He asks God over and over again the exact question that's most pressing on his heart. And the incredible thing is that God responds. And so we're going to be diving into this book for the next three weeks. And, and the thing about Habakkuk that's so unique is Habakkuk is a prophet. And the pro- there are all these different genres of books of the Bible. One of them is the prophetic. And, and basically how the prophets work is before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God, like today God can speak directly and does to you through the Holy Spirit. But before the Holy Spirit, God spoke to prophets, and those prophets gave God's message to God's people. And so prophets were the go-betweens between God and humanity. And so over and over and over again, you know, God gives a message to the prophet, and the prophet communicates. God gives a message to the prophet, the prophet communicates. Habakkuk is the only prophet in the Bible who never gives God's message to the people. 
he always only gives the people's message to God. So we're going to dive into that for the next three weeks. We're going to dive into those hard questions. We're going to ask the question, are there any questions off base for God? We're going to start in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. That's going to be on the screen now. It says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? He's coming out of the box hot. I'm calling out to you, and you're not listening. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, this is the back of speaking, to God. I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> the law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. He's asking these hard questions. And this is the, like, the first, Habakkuk 1.1 1, 1 is like, these are the words of Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk 1.2 is like, I'm calling, you're not listening, life isn't fair, there's violence and destruction and a lack of justice, what's up? And actually, specifically, he's speaking about the Jewish people, that his, his brothers and sisters, his countrymen, the Jewish culture and the people, they were not following God with their life. They were living a destructive life. They were not living a God-honoring life. And so he's, he looks out his window, and he sees people taking advantage of each other. He's seeing injustices. He's seeing people harming one another. He's seeing oppression and marginalization and all this. And, he, and he's like, man, this is not right. This doesn't honor you. This isn't how it should be. What's up? What's happening? Why are you allowing this? Your people, my countrymen, they're acting up. Why are you allowing this? And so God responds. In 1, 5 through 9, the Lord replied, Look around at the nations, look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't even believe, in, even if someone told you about it. It's funny, it's like, he says, if I told you I'm about to do, you wouldn't believe me. He tells him what he's going to do, and he doesn't believe him. It's like this whole, like, mind circular thing happening. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people, they will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. So at this point, Habakkuk's like, my people, my countrymen, my brothers and sisters, they're acting up. They're not honoring you with their life. Why do you allow this? And God's like, you know what? You're right. They are. And I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come in. They're going to conquer and oppress. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to raise the, the temple to the ground. And then your people are going to be enslaved and oppressed. But then eventually they're going to come back to me through this experience. And then you see Habakkuk's response to this in verse Habakkuk 1, 12 through 13. It says this, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. You see what he's doing here? Like, again, he's questioning him. He had this big question. My people, they're not doing right. They're, they're, they're walking away from the faith. And then he's like, you're right. I'm going to call them back to me. And, he, and then Habakkuk is like indignant. 
He's angry. Yeah, yeah, I want you to call us back, but not like that. Keep going. Oh Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? He's incredulous. He's like, I know we're bad. But we see what he says at the very end of that? We're more righteous than they. We're not as bad as them. He asks a hard question. God answers. And he doesn't like the answer. And so he asks more hard questions. Why are you allowing this? God says, I'm not going to. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to, to call, through violence, call them, your people back to me. But they're so much worse than us. Why would you let bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And then it comes back, back at 2 verse 1, it says this, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Now, what you see here is that Habakkuk, is, he's, hit his, his, he's hit his rock bottom. He, is, he has nothing else to go on. He is angry. He is hurt. He is incredulous. He is confused. He doesn't know how to move forward. And when you are in these spaces, when you are at rock bottom, what his response is in these verses is helpful. This is going to be like a little tiny little sermonette inside of this larger sermon. Because there's three things I want you to see about his response. The first one is that he goes back to his foundational beliefs about the nature of God. See, remember what he said? He said, oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal. What does he say? Oh, he calls him Lord. Oh, what is Lord? Lord is, it's like, it's jurisdiction, it's authority, it's the ability to have command over something, to Lord. He says, oh Lord, my God. He says, God, I know that you are in charge of my life. And what does he, what, and what does he say? He says, you are my holy one. God is holy. He is other than. He is beyond what we can fathom and become. He is other than this world and our lives. And then he says, you who are eternal. God carries this e wisdom of eternality. And so he says, you are Lord, you are holy, and you are eternal. He falls back on the nature, the foundational things. He also falls back on the relational aspect with God. He says, my God, my holy one. When, when the chips are down, when you are at your worst, when you have these hard questions, fall back on the relationship, how God has been faithful in your life in the past. My God, my holy one. He's not just God. He's not just a holy one. He is my holy one. The second thing he does when the chips are down. The third thing he does is he doesn't act. He waits for God to act. He says, there I will wait to see what the Lord says. And if he flew off the handle, if he just responded, if he was impetuous, if he was, if he was rash, he could go off and do more damage. But he doesn't have any direction to go. He just says, God, in this moment, I am so incredibly and totally dependent on you and what you have to say in your wisdom. I'm just going to wait to see what you have to say. Because I got nothing left. I got all the questions and none of the answers. He does something that is incredibly powerful. He is honest to God about how he's feeling, 
Like we, in church world, in church, we talk about relationship with God. You should have a relationship with God. You should be in relationship with Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we think about relationship with God in terms of like, I pray and I come to church and I sing songs. But Habakkuk approaches God, his relationship is very different. He's having conversation. He has questions. He goes back and forth. He waits for. He casts a vision for what a relationship with God could and should look like. He's an active, critical follower. I'm gonna, you're going to see a video here in a second. This was, the, this was first discovered by a guy named William Beebe, and this is called an ant mill. And you're going to see this, or an ant death spiral. And what you have is ants follow the ant in front of them. That's all they know how to do. If ants have the, ants have the most efficient society in the entire world, and they, they, they have a job to do, and they do it. And the ants follow the ant in front of them. And if a tree branch falls in, like, let's say the, the long, mile-long snake of ants going through the Amazon jungle, and a tree branch falls and squishes one, well, the ant that didn't get squished follows that ant, but that ant's no longer around. And so if that ant turns, all the other ants behind it also turn. And what happens is, oh, this ant who just turned sees more ants, and this ant begins to follow that ant, and the ants just spiral around themselves until they either are exhausted or starve to death. It's called a death mill or an ant mill. Because all they know how to do is just blindly follow. Is that what God wants from us? Does he want us to just blindly follow? Or does he want us to understand, to call out, to be dependent, to ask questions? Those ants, they'll just walk in a circle until they die of either exhaustion or starvation. There is this act. So I, by the way, I am in my, I'm, a, I'm getting a seminary degree. I have two classes left, by the way. I don't want to, I'm pretty excited about that. And I'll have a master's in transformational leadership from Bethel Seminary. But really, what my degree is, it's leadership theory from a Christ-centered perspective. That's what I'm working on. And leadership has been studied for decades, centuries. But only recently have studies been done to, an, to this extent on what it means to be a great follower. What it means to not just follow blindly like an ant in an ant mill or a death spiral, but to be a productive follower. And so Dave isn't here, but Dave likes XY axis graphs. I'm going to use one. I'm not going to have any Dallas Willard quotes today. You'd get the full DR experience if I did. <laughs> I can say that joke because I told it out to him in the lobby earlier. Uh, <laughs> so what you have here is this right here. This is active following. And this is discerning. Walking in the wisdom and the insight and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And being active in your faith and in your following. So if you are here, if you are this, you are just you're not, you're not discerning, you're not active. You know, we, you guys know how these X, Y axis things work, right? Like, this is okay, this is okay, you don't want to be here, you do want to be here. Like, this, they're all kind of the same, but follow along with me. So if you are not active, if you are not discerning, then as a follower, you are passive. 
If you are discerning but not active, if you are thinking and processing and understanding through the work of God and the Holy Spirit, but you're not active in what you are discerning, then you are a bystander. If you're active, if you're moving, if you're productive for the kingdom, but you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into what it is you're doing, then you're just a participant. You're just moving along. By the way, there are very few moments more scary than spelling in front of a room full of people. <laughs> that moment where you're like, wait, how do you spell participant? <laughs> That's just like, this, it's fine, I'll move along now. <laughs> and, then you, and then here, if you are active in your faith and in your journey, but you're also discerning, then it, and you're following, you become a critical follower. One who is active in your, in, your role, in your role as a follower. But also who's discerning. Who's not just going along and just like, just, you know, if a tree branch falls, you just walk in a spiral until you die. No, 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 you're allowing God to speak into. This is what you see from Habakkuk. He is discerning. He is asking hard questions. But he's not just sitting on them. He's active. The only thing he has left to do is talk to God about what he's feeling and he's thinking. His only action he can take is to ask questions. And so that's what he does. So he is discerning and he is active. He is a critical follower. It's actually a Jewish word for a critical follower. It's kadoshim. K-I-D-O-S-H-I-M. And it means critical follower. There's a long history in the Jewish culture and tradition for people to be critical followers of their leaders and of God and in situations, like it is culturally, there's an understanding that as a good follower, you will at times have this critical followership. One rabbi says of kadoshim, critical followership, even a teacher and disciple, even a father and son, when they sit to study Torah together, the Bible, become enemies to one another, but they do not move from there until they have become beloved to one another. Much wisdom I have learned from my teacher, more from my colleagues, but most from my students. This is about pushing back for heaven's sake. We see this politically in the Bible. Samuel pushed back to Saul, Elijah to Ahab, Isaiah to Hezekiah, Nathan to David, Esther to King Xerxes, people who were discerning and active. All these times, there were critical understandings that if these situations where they were pushing back on a monarch or a king, that they could lose their life for this. We see this over and over and over again in the Bible of people asking hard questions to God. Abraham says in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you, God, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He's like, God, I don't feel like you're being just right now. Moses in Exodus 5.22 and Numbers 11.11, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you done evil to your servant? Jeremiah in 12, 1 through 2 says this. He says, Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring this complaint to you. I'm complaining to you, God. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are the evil people so happy? You have planted them and you have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips, but you are far from their hearts. Even Jesus asked God hard questions. The book of Matthew records too. My father, if it is possible, May this cup, and by this cup, the cross experience, be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over and over and over again in the Bible, what you see is active 
critical followership. When the chips are down, when they have nothing else to do, nowhere else to go, they ask the hard question. They ask the hard question of God. Small questions don't intimidate a big God. Big questions only intimidate a small God. The size of your questions will be determined by the size of your God. And if you only ask God small questions, what does that say about your belief of him? Small questions don't intimidate a big God. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you earlier. If you'd ask God anything, what would you ask him? Has there been a time, a rejection, a diagnosis, a loss, a confusion, a season, a marginalization? That makes no sense if God is good all the time. One of the things that, you, that is available to you if you're in a small group is there are small group questions based on sermons. We do this thing every week. One of our questions this week is that question exactly. So if you're in a small group, man, have your small group leader ask that question and discuss it. What questions would you have for God if you could ask him anything and you knew you'd get a response? That's going to be a powerful time with you and your small group if you go there with your group. And as this sermon wraps up now, it's not going to resolve. See, I, you know, part of like, you know, be, going to school to be a pastor is you take preaching courses at different times in undergrad and seminary. And they, all, and they say, like, have an opening, have three points, have a closing, wrap it up nice and neat, 25 to 30 minutes, a couple personal stories, bada bing, bada boom, some quotes, it's good. But this isn't going to resolve like that because it's not resolved in Habakkuk's life right now. Habakkuk's still in the questioning point. We're going to, over the next couple of weeks, find that resolution in Habakkuk's life. So I'd invite you back to that. But in your life, but the thing is, like, if I give you this big questions and this big challenge and these doubts and these questions for God, and it resolves nicely in 25 minutes, that's not how your life actually functions. Right? Those seasons in your life don't resolve nice and neat in 25 minutes. Otherwise, those wouldn't be those seasons you'd be asking God's questions about. We're going to rest a little bit in the tension of this story because there's tension in your story. And so we're going to continue to wrestle with this the way Habakkuk is wrestling with this over the next couple of weeks. But this week, with someone you love and trust, maybe share that. What would your question be for God if you could ask him anything? And if you're here next week, Tommy will carry this on. And we'll talk even more about this then. It'll be a great time. We'll grow together as a church family. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that big questions don't scare you. Thank you that we can ask you anything. That you are so big and so holy and so eternal and so beyond that our little questions can't possibly intimidate you. Thank you that you are faithful and that you are good all the time. And in our worst moments, in those seasons, that's something, that foundational, relational bit is something we can fall back on.
So God, as we do this spiritual work of asking hard questions this week as a church family, be with us. Allow us to experience you in our daily life. Be present. Be close. Be visceral in our life so that we know that you're not intimidated or scared off by these, but that you're drawing nigh, near and nigh to us through them. We're not asking them out of disrespect. We're asking them because you are God and we are not, because we love you and we have no other option but to ask of you. We thank you for what you're going to do. In your name, amen.